talked about uh, trust when life is unfair, certainty when life is uncertain. We talked about living for others and being content in life. And that kind of springboards us into where we're going to be today, talking about the worthy character that we are to have and looking at Philippians chapter 2. And what I'm finding as we study this book together is that Philippians is really all about growing up in Christ so far, how we mature as Christ followers. And I I don't know about you, but I, I don't care to grow up. I don't care to get older. Um, I would, I'm, I'm 21. You know? Um, when, I, when I was younger, I wanted the benefits of being older without the responsibility of being older. I wanted to uh, drive where I wanted to drive when I wanted to drive there. And ironically, whenever I got my license, it ended up being driving around one city block in Sullivan 4,000 times on a Friday and Saturday night. Uh, I wanted, to, I wanted a, the benefit of a paycheck, but I didn't want the responsibility of earning the paycheck. I just wanted someone to give me one so I could do with it what I wanted. I wanted my own stuff my own space, my own house, my own things, but now I'm finding that maintaining my own stuff, my own house, my own things is not something that I'm crazy about. We have a word in our culture that we didn't have when I was younger that talks about this process of getting older, of growing up. It's called adulting. We've seen it all over the place. It's actually going to be added to the dictionary. We'll talk about that in just a second, but adulting means that we, we, we grow up. We mature. And there are many, many days that I don't want to adult anymore, that I'm done. I want to go back to my carefree, um, self-indulging, provided-for lifestyle that I had whenever I was, whenever I was a kid. Um, and this word is going to be added to the dictionary, defined this way. Adulting will be defined as to behave in an adult manner, engage in activities associated with adulthood, to make someone behave like an adult, or to turn someone into an adult. It is... The, it's amazing where these words come from, these words that they're going to add. I had a whole list, and I wish I could share them all with you, but this was the, the fastest growing word, and that's why they're, they're going to add this to the dictionary. There's a, an author and linguist who talked about this word. His name's Ben Zimmer, and he says that people who, who do this, who, who are adulting, they, they use this word to describe people who find themselves doing things for the first time to feel like an adult, and it's very much attached to people coming of age when they are thrust into having to take things more seriously. Adulting is about growing up. Adulting is about maturing, taking life seriously, taking responsibility. And this morning, as we continue through Philippians, we're going to look at how we as Christ followers are to grow up, how we are to disciple ourselves, to grow up into what we are supposed to be in Christ, what the Father desires from us. So the question I wrestled with in this is, is how do we do that? How do we grow up spiritually? And we're going to look uh, at the first 11 verses in Philippians 2 to, to kind of see what this all means for us. But before we do that, and as you turn to Philippians 2 in your Bibles or on your tablets or on your phones, um, I just want to share with you a little bit about Philippians. It's a letter written by Paul. Paul was the guy who wrote letters to churches, and he signed them. He didn't send anonymous letters to churches. He actually signed these letters that he sent to churches, and he told them in a corrective way how they, their behavior needed to change. Do this, stop doing this. Act this way, don't act this way. There was a, a corrective tone that most of his letters carried with them. He was, um, 
this, this church in Philippi was very dear to him. He had great affection for them. So this was normal for him to speak to them this way on this, on this very implicit level. He, he greets them, he encourages them, and then he turns and he speaks very directly uh, to people that he obviously cares a lot about. Now, I'm not a friendship expert, and it actually is tough for me to maintain uh, friendships for a number of reasons. I am a forced extrovert. Uh, I don't mind being in crowds. I don't mind being around people, but I am not a conversation initiator. I absolutely despise confrontation. Um, Most of the time, when I share what I think, it's not going to be what I want to say, okay? Uh, I've learned, however, over the last few months even, that the more I am myself in a relationship, the better the reward. The more I am open and I make myself more involved in a relationship, the more valuable it is to me. And that's what Paul is, is doing here. He's, he's practicing that. He's saying, you're dear to me, and I'm going to tell you some things, some stuff that you may not want to hear. It's probably going to upset you, and that's okay with that. I'm okay with that because my goal is not to make you comfortable, but instead to make you complete. So here's what I have to say to you. The first four verses of Philippians 2 are all we're going to read right now, and it says this. It says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And we'll stop there. This passage kind of shows us some necessary traits that we have to have in order to live like Christ, to grow up into the Christ follower we have called to be. Most of us, if we've been in church for any number of years, we've heard these verses in Philippians before, probably can recite them from memory, at least some of them, if not all of them. Um, But sometimes, like things that we hear regularly or we reference frequently, they tend to lose their meaning. And I think that the first word in this passage should immediately cause us to look back because it says, therefore, so there's a reason this is there. What did he say right before this? Well, the the section right before, 27 through 30, um, I'm just going to paraphrase this for you. It'll be on the screen, but I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. It says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come see you or I hear about you, um, I know that you're living in the Spirit. You have one faith. You're striving together against the opposition He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And since this is how we're supposed to live in a worthy manner, we're to have a worthy character, how do we conduct ourselves that way? Paul is saying, hey, it's time to adult. It's time to conduct yourselves differently. It's time to change your character and have a worthy character. So what does a worthy character look like? Well, I think that we live most like Christ. We have a worthy character in living most like Christ when we live least for ourselves. If you don't remember anything else, remember that. We live most like Christ when we live least for ourselves. So, so what does that mean? I think one of the hardest things about growing up, about changing your character, and I think, you know, I, I even see this in my kids, is that we have to realize as we mature as adults, we have to know that our actions, our life, affects other people. 
It does. And as Christ followers, what we need to realize about our life is that our life is lived for other people. Lived for other people. That's a, a worthy character. And to live in a manner worthy of the gospel means, first of all, that we realize that life is not about us. It's not. Life is not about us. These opening verses of this text, uh, Paul says, if you've experienced the love of Christ, if He has made an impact on your life, if you share in His Spirit being influential as you live, then make me happy by extending the same grace and love to people that you know. If Christ has impacted your life, it should impact the way that you treat other people. Not only should we extend that as individuals, the compassion and the tenderness that it talks about, but we as the church, we should do this as well in unity, he says. One mind, being one in spirit. Our vision and our mission as the church is to realize that we exist not for ourselves, but for other people. It's about more than Sunday morning. But where does that begin? How does that infectious character permeate the body here at First Christian Church? How do we change that, or how do we emphasize the selfless living that we are called to? And it starts with us individually, because we, we are the church collectively. And when we all live like that, it starts to become infectious and moves among us. We have to realize that life is not really about us, and it begins whenever we start to live most like Christ and least for ourselves. Maybe we would better understand it in these terms. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Pretty elementary. Learned that at an early age. The golden rule. Treat others the way that you want to be treated. I heard Matt Proctor from Ozark preach a sermon, and he quoted his mother, something she would say to them every day before they left from school, and now I say it all the time to my kids. Be a friend to somebody who needs a friend more than you. Be a friend to somebody who needs a friend more than you. Live selflessly. The step in growing up and changing our character is, is, is about um, forgetting ourselves, focusing on other people. Christ did this for us. And, uh, and another Pauline letter in, in Romans, he echoes this sentiment of only loving people and extending love to them they don't owe you anything. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another. That that's what we all owe each other, is to accept each other the way that we are and to love one another and to live with and for one another. What Paul says here is that if you understand what you have received, then it will affect how you act towards others. If you understand what Jesus in your life means... It changes the way that you treat other people. And these next few verses are tough to, to read through, to practice, because they're all about this word humility. They're all about the one thing that we have the hardest time practicing, being humble. Humility is defined as the quality or state of not thinking that you are better than other people. And we can sit here and say, I'm not, I, I don't I don't think just about myself. I am a humble person. I, I don't think I'm better than anybody else. But at some point, we have to acknowledge that pride is part of all of us. 
We are all prideful. Pride is the root of all sin, and we'll talk about that in just a few moments. But humility is to be part of our character. Uh, Rick Warren says it this way in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. He said that humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of, it's not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. Also in that book, he says this about pride and the humble character that we're to, to wear as the bride of Christ. He says that pride blocks God's grace in our lives which we must have in order to grow, change, heal, and help others. We receive God's grace by humbly admitting that we need it. The Bible says that anytime we are prideful, we are living in opposition to God. I really like how the, uh, the ESV states uh, this, this verse about humility. Uh, it says, each of us should not only look to our own interests but to the interests of others, not only. So, in humility, like, like we just heard, it's, it's not thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of ourselves less. We don't forget about ourselves. We're not, it's not that we're not important. We have needs that need to be provided for, but we're not focused on ourselves with everything. It's not forgetting about yourself, it's thinking about yourself less, which is difficult for us as Americans, as people, as humans, let's just say. That's not what we're taught in our culture. That's not what we practice. Our wants and our needs are to be first, and then the needs and the wants of other people. If we have time and we have resources, we can address those things. But here's the question that I ask myself as I read through this. Are my wants and desires only about me? And if my wants and my desires are only about me, then what do I need to change in my heart? If, if they are, humility is not part of my character. The Bible talks about um, God giving us the desires of our heart, but I think that's only true whenever the desires of our heart are the desires that He has for us. If you only seek to promote yourself and elevate your status, then selfish ambition and vain conceit have taken humility's place on that shelf in your heart, and we'll talk about those in just a moment. Here's why humility is so difficult, like I said. It is, the, it is pride is the root of all sin. It is the reason for the fall of man. It is what led Satan to oppose God. It is the one vice of which no man in the world is free, as C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity. And he also says this about, about it. He says, there's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it, the more we dislike it in others. We live most like Christ when we live least for ourselves. We live most like Christ when we are humble and we put others in the right place in the hierarchy of life. Jesus, others, you. That's where real joy is found. But in doing so, we have to acknowledge that in doing for others, we are giving up something ourselves. So we have to recognize the need to sacrifice in order to grow. And I think that this is where we hit selfish ambition and vain conceit pretty hard, having to give up so that others can have. Christ had the authority and the power to call down angels from heaven when He was on the cross to, to save Him, but instead he, he resolutely proceeded to endure the sacrifice that was before Him to fulfill His purpose. And we, too, need to recognize our call to sacrifice for other people. Maybe not to that extent, maybe so. We should be willing to come to a point where we are willing to give up so that someone else can have something better. 
And, and it may not be best or better in our eyes, but to them it may be. It won't be pleasant. It will probably be uncomfortable, but I'm pretty sure that's why they call it sacrifice, because it's going to hurt. It's going to be unpleasant. It's supposed to demand of us in the end, but in the end, it will help us to live most like Christ and least for ourselves. Sacrifice is difficult for anyone, and giving up is not a very popular thing. I tried to think of a of an illustration for this, and the only thing I could think of was the best illustration in my life that I go to continually, and that's Peyton and Matthias, because they provide all kinds of stories. Matthias is 10, Peyton's 8, he'll be 9 here pretty soon. Um, he, Matthias had a birthday this summer, and not only did he get a lot of gifts and things for his birthday, but he also received a whole lot of cash that he decided he was going to spend not long after his birthday, actually. Um, but I was able to see him practice this right after. Matthias, taking after his father, loves to spend money. Um, no comments from the finance committee or the church board there, okay? Um, he loves to spend money. We, we talk about it all the time. Uh, but he, he went out. His mother took him out, which was probably the safest option for shopping, um, to spend this money for his birthday. Um, so he went, and he came home had all this stuff, and he showed me what he got, and I thought, that's all you got with all that money? And he said, well, I got something else, too, but it's not for me. And I don't know if it was half of the money that he got from his birthday or how much it was, but he bought something for Peyton that Peyton had been eyeballing for months. And if you know Peyton, not only was he eyeballing it for months, but he talked about it continuously without taking a breath sometimes. And Matthias said... Peyton really wanted it, and I knew that it would make him happy. Probably not like real sacrifice when you think about it, but Matthias gave up a lot that he could have had for himself so his brother could be happy. Sacrificing so that someone else can have happiness. How often do we see that practice in our culture today? Paul states that we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, he says. Two forbidden motivations here in the worthy character of a Christ follower. There's another book out there. Um, it's called To Live as Christ, To Die as Gain, and it's a study through the book of, the, of Philippians by Matt Chandler, who is a pastor and author from Dallas, Texas, and he states this about selfish ambition. He says, nothing must be done from a place of selfish ambition. So, woe to us for thinking, well, they're making this amount of money, so I've got to make that amount of money. Woe to us for thinking they're, they're at this level of happiness, so I've got to be a little bit happier than them. If they live in a house that's this big, then I've got to have a bigger house. It's not just about keeping up with the Joneses, as sinful as that is, but it's about living in such a way to say, in your face, Joneses. Selfish ambition is translated as rivalry in some places, and we cannot sacrifice to a rival. It's just not in us. Selfish ambition is living as if Christ has not settled the score. And Paul is saying, do nothing from this place. Have nothing to do with it because it's not the life that Christ lived and it's not the life that you are called to live. You are called to live most like Christ and least for yourself. The other forbidden motivation that we see here is vain conceit. And if selfish ambition is 
trying to beat the Joneses, then vain conceit is pouting whenever you don't. Conceit is pride that connects our feelings to our image. We're bitter, we are jealous, we are angry, and we, we should not live life comparing the successes of others to our failures. We should not live that way. But, but what, do we, what do we do with things that we… What, what are these two things? Okay, selfish ambition, vain conceit. What's it have to do with sacrifice? What's it have to do with, with giving up? Well, it means that we don't, we don't strive to have more of things in our life to measure up to the standards of the world, but instead that we give of ourselves continuously. The ultimate sacrifice in a life lived for Christ is a life that's lived for others, and these two characteristics have no place in the life of a Christ follower. When it comes to sacrificing in order to grow, what we're really being called to give up is… is is what we want in our life for the needs that others have. We essentially end up giving our lives to people in, in every way. We give up our time, our money, our possessions. We give of ourselves so that others can know Jesus. These, these two characteristics, these are forbidden motivations, we can't live from there. We can't have a worthy character from that place. We can't sacrifice from a place that is focused on ourselves and these motivations are prideful, and pride is the antithesis of humility. That's not where we live from. Paul knew as he continued to communicate this to his friends that they were going to need an example. They were going to need a sermon illustration to help them understand what this meant. And he had a pretty good one. Um, and we too are to rely on this ultimate example that he gives as we live most like Christ, at least for ourselves. Paul states that Jesus lived a selfless and continual life of sacrifice, and He received the greatest reward. His life was pleasing to God, and Jesus is really the entire subject of this passage. We're going to go on through 5 through 11 now, here in just a second, kind of look at how Jesus lived and how we too are to live. Now, I'm not saying Jesus never did anything for Himself. He probably met his needs. He probably got rest. He probably fed himself, and he always took care of his spiritual needs. I'm sure he did those things. I'm sure he made sure that his basic needs were met, and we know that he made a priority of a spiritual life. But he was simple in his life. He was simple in the way that he lived so he could be big in love and an influence on others. When he saw the opportunity to make a difference in someone, by giving up some of himself, he took it. Paul tells us, don't seek to be better than everyone, and don't pout whenever you're not better than everybody. And over the course of my adult years, I have found that I spend much time accumulating stuff and satisfying my wants. I've also learned that satisfying my wants brings me absolutely zero lasting satisfaction, maybe temporary satisfaction but no lasting satisfaction. It's when I'm able to provide for the needs of others and give up what I want that I find the most fulfillment in life. The healthiest relationships are not the ones that we seek things from, but instead they are the ones that we surrender to. And we live most like Christ when we live least for ourselves. And Paul tells us in our relationships, we are to be like Christ 
who, starting in verse 5, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. What he says there is we too are not to consider ourselves better than we are as we look at His example. We are not to think that we know better than God in any given situation. Christ had the authority to do anything that He wanted, but instead He surrendered to the will of God in all things. His status did not change His obedience. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The crux to our lives as humans is that pride is our nature, but servanthood is our calling. Pride is our nature, but servanthood is our calling. We cannot escape the desires that that we have, uh, the wants that we have to achieve more, but we also cannot ignore that we are called to sacrifice and to give, to make ourselves least. He continues and says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Though Christ had the authority to call down angels from heaven and do whatever He wanted, He found, was found in appearance as, as everyone around Him. He, he looked no differently, though He was quite different. He deserved worship and glory and honor and accolade and adoration and praise, but instead, He thought of Himself less and others more. He didn't seek those things out to the point that He suffered the most disgraceful death that someone could face. The cross was not a symbol of accomplishment but of failure. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Because of his obedience, Christ was exalted. Because of his selflessness and life lived least for himself, there was recognition and favor in the eyes of God. He accomplished his purpose by being obedient to even the most horrendous death imaginable. And therefore, God acted in a way that only He can and gave the recognition that only He can give, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Lastly, this morning, in realizing that life is not about us and recognizing our need to sacrifice and relying on the ultimate example, we must redirect all glory to Jesus. In the end, there's only one life that matters. And his life was lived in such a way that he made every life more important than his own. We live most like him when we live least for us. The worthy character that we are called to model is a character of complete transparency. It's a character that draws absolutely no attention to us but directs all attention to Christ. In humility, we are to point others away from us to the cross on which Jesus was glorified. One more quote for you this morning from C.S. Lewis again from Mere Christianity. He says this about a life of pride. He says, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, if you are always looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. 
Every week we come to redirect the glory to Jesus. We come to worship corporately as the bride of Christ, His kingdom on earth. We worship through singing. Singing is not our worship. It's part of our worship. We, we, we worship through fellowship and relationships, through reading God's Word, through prayer, through giving and our obedience and tithes and offerings, that celebratory time. And we celebrate a feast together, a supper. And I've often used this quote from an issue of The Lookout a few years ago when talking about communion, but I can't say it any better. I mean, I could hear this every Sunday right before this time that we share, and I would be completely content. It doesn't need fancy dress. It just needs these words. It says, the Lord's Supper is the heart and soul of Christian fellowship. I like it so much, it's taped right here in my Bible. It's the centerpiece of our coming together in assembly. It's the summation of all it means to be a disciple of Christ. It acknowledges the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of the living God, that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a perpetual memorial of His death until He returns is indicative of the importance this feast holds in the life of every Christian who is eager to maintain intimacy with Christ. It's what this time is all about. The worthy character of Christ took Him to a cross where He sacrificed, gave Himself in total surrender to the will and the purpose of God. And that's what we want to celebrate now as we, as we take communion together. He is our example. He is the worthy character that we are to model and to be like as we disciple, as we grow up into what Jesus intended for us to be. So as we spend these next few, mo- few moments together in this, in this supper, I just want to ask that you, you would pray this prayer with me before we do that. Would you, would you bow with me?